Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder that this workshop is being recorded, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Metzner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Kids Care program. Um, and this is probably one of the most premier programs we offer throughout the year. It's highlights from the 2020 American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, annual meeting, Unite and Conquer, Accelerating Progress Together. And today's program is really a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we have so many of you on the call today. And that indeed, in addition to your interest in the program today, this is a unique program in the sense that we are addressing many different types of cancers on this program today. And so you're going to get to hear about highlights of those from the, from the meeting. So we have on the call today over 220 participants on the call who come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from many countries, actually, Australia, Canada, um, Ecuador, India, Iraq, Italy, Japan, Libya, Pakistan, Philippines, Singapore, Switzerland, United Kingdom, so really quite a global call as well. And today's program is supported by AFI, and I really want to thank them for their support to today's program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. Dr. Crawford is George Berth, Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine, co-leader, Solid Tumor Therapeutics Program, Principal Investigator of NCTN LAPS Grant, Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. Crawford will be addressing clinical trials and evidence-based care in the context of COVID-19 and quality of life. And I'm, it's really my great pleasure now to this program to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Crawford. Carolyn, thanks for that nice introduction, and uh, it's wonderful to be with all of you today. I'm going to narrow down that uh, list of topics and really focus on COVID-19, which is really at the forefront of everything we do these days. So I think we all see the uh, statistics every day in terms of the global rate of COVID-19 uh, cases, now more than 17 million, of which 4.5 million have occurred in the United States. 670,000 deaths and 153,000 in the United States today. So it's just staggering numbers that's impacted all of us, either personally or through friends or family. Um, and it's uh, a lot to deal with. But today we're going to deal with it in the context of the cancer and cancer community. How has that been impacted by COVID-19? We, we know there are advances in treatment. We have remdesivir and antiviral agents. We know that uh, dexamethasone, uh, a very commonly used anti-inflammatory agent has a role here, so we're excited that there will be other research opportunities uh, for new agents that will help treat this disease. Uh, but that right now there's nothing more important than prevention, and uh, we all know hand-washing, face masks, and social distancing are at the core of everything we do uh, and very important to apply uh, until we're out of this uh, pandemic, until we have a vaccine and are uh, on the next phase. And, there's exciting news about that as well. Uh, so we're talking about ASCO today. ASCO is a meeting that occurs every year. normally has more than 30,000 participants. 
Uh, it's a very vibrant meeting where we really learn a lot of new information. Uh, and that's certainly true this year, and you'll hear that throughout the course of, uh, uh, of our talks today. But what was different was this was a virtual meeting this year. We weren't together, so the, as a cancer community, we weren't able to talk to each other directly. And while great information was obtained, it's not the same. And so, uh, you know, ASCO itself was impacted by COVID-19. And what I'm going to focus on is the um, a clinical symposium that was conducted uh, through ASCO that really addressed a number of the issues about COVID-19. Uh, first, uh, the person to uh, discuss things there was Dr. Sharpless. He's the director of the National Cancer Institute, and he talked about the impact COVID-19 was having on cancer care and research in terms of potential for delaying diagnosis and upstaging of patients, decreased screening during this time, um, uh, changing or reduced uh, standard of care, and uh, decreased number of people enrolling on clinical trials during this time. Uh, also, an increased cost of the clinical trials because all the extra work needs to be done uh, in this in this era. And maybe one of the things we haven't thought as much about uh, slowing of basic cancer research because many of the labs have been closed during this time. Most are reopening now, but uh, that has slowed cancer research. So several negative impacts, unfortunately, um, uh, in terms of where we're trying to move things with cancer. Now, again, the NCI is responding to this. They've uh, provided flexibility for a lot of their grant, uh, grant programs. They themselves have been trying to uh, improve the COVID-19 testing. Uh, they've been more flexible on some of the clinical trial endpoints. So I think we're seeing uh, advances there that will be important. And perhaps most important, they've started an NCI, National Cancer Institute, uh, trial looking at COVID-19 in cancer patients, a prospective study of 2,000 patients. Uh, this got set up in six weeks, which is a record uh, and speaks to what things uh, can happen in a time of crisis. And this will have a special emphasis on minority, underserved, and rural populations so we can really understand what the outcomes of patients are with COVID-19 and cancer at the same time. Now, in the same um, symposium, there were two different presentations on early data uh, from different studies of COVID-19 in cancer patients. One was from the center at Vanderbilt, but it's sort of a grassroots effort that's involved many people at the different centers across the United States and somewhat in uh, Europe and Canada. And their thought was that um, there are the, the risks of increased adverse outcomes from COVID-19 in cancer patients, potentially because of increased age, more comorbidities, more other disorders and diseases they have to deal with, um, as well as the potential impact of uh, the immune system being impacted by both the cancer and its treatment. Um, so they looked at uh, nearly a 1,000 patients um, over a very short period of time and tried to sort out who had um, poorer outcomes than others. This is mainly a population of patients with Solid tumors, about 80%. 20% had hematologic malignancies. Uh, the most common uh, tumor type here was breast and followed by prostate cancer in the groups they looked at. Um, and what they found was, in fact, that the mortality rate was higher in these patients compared to what would be expected from uh, uh, other populations. Uh, and clearly, about half of them required hospitalization. Uh, and Factors that were associated with either hospitalization or uh, poorer outcomes were, in particular, uh, advanced age over 75 
and what we call poor performance status, patients who are not able to uh, care for themselves. Uh, on the other hand, when they looked at patients with uh, normal performance status, um, in fact, these cancer patients had outcomes better uh, than have been seen in, in other patients with, uh, with COVID-19 infection. So that, that's encouraging for the patients. Uh, also, patients with, uh, where the cancer was stable had very good outcomes. So it was mainly in the population of patients where there was progressive disease um, or other poor health uh, factors associated with that. So it, it does help us in the cancer community in identifying those patients at highest risk and trying to figure out how best to intervene for them. Now, the second uh, study that was done was largely done in Europe, and this is uh, mainly in Spain, and this looked mainly at lung cancer patients. So in this population, compared to the U.S. population, there was uh, a higher mortality in this population. And we think that's part, partially due to the fact that this was done during the real crisis of COVID-19 in that country uh, where there just wasn't access to health care and health care resources, and it points out how important that is uh, in moving forward. Again, they did identify problems with comorbidities uh, of patients having other disorders that increase their risk. Um, and I think they also found that chemotherapy itself carried some risk compared to immunotherapy or targeted therapy, which didn't seem to have a negative impact. So it calls attention to us as providers to be particularly careful in chemotherapy administration and how we would deal with patients moving forward. Now, to that uh, end, the National Cancer Network, ASCO, ESMO, have all come out with newer guidelines so that when we give chemotherapy for patients, uh, we're able to prescribe growth factors and other agents to a broader population to reduce their risk of complications. So I think that's going to be an important uh, uh, part of implementation for our practice. I think what all of this speaks to is, on a positive side, is, our, is the need for us to uh, improve our healthcare delivery systems, both in the U.S. and as well as globally. So we're ready, not only for the pandemic, but we're ready to manage patients who don't have COVID-19, but who need regular care alongside of the patients getting COVID-19 treatment. So I think that speaks to another session that asked about cancer care delivery. Uh, we've been working in that area for a long time, but I think there's renewed emphasis here. So there are a number of in interesting presentations on the use of nurse navigators, mobile application uh, agents, uh, the use of text messaging, all with patients at home so that we can be more in touch with their needs uh, and outcomes during treatment and require less visits to the hospital and to, and to the clinic. So I think those types of, uh, of um, interventions that would be very important uh, for COVID-19 and for, for all our patients. And then I think the, the other uh, point that was uh, very nicely raised was in a study that looked at the improvement in cancer mortality rates over the last few decades. Uh, in the U.S., they've dramatically lowered. Uh, and interestingly, uh, this group looked at states where uh, the Affordable Care Act was approved versus where it wasn't, and there was greater improvement in mortality in the states that adopted the Affordable Care Act versus those that didn't. So again, it's speaking to uh, access, the need for health care for all, uh, and how we really have to take the whole COVID-19 um, situation as a call to action uh, to improve health care for all. So in closing, let me just say uh, I've talked about a number of different things that might affect individuals 
risk for COVID-19 infection. The best way for you to get that information is to talk to your healthcare provider about what additional steps you can take in addition to the normal prevention strategies. Uh, what's appropriate for you might be very different for somebody else. So all of these factors, though, that we've learned from ASCO and elsewhere, I think will be helpful for our healthcare providers uh, in giving you the best advice. So I will stop there, Carolyn, and thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Crawford, and a lot of very important information for people to have in terms of their communication with the healthcare team and knowing what to do. So thank you so much. You are excellent. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Minetta Liu. Dr. Liu is Professor and Research Chair, Division of Medical Oncology, Department of Oncology. She's consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. She's Medical Director, Office of Specialty Collaboration and Contracts, Co-Leader, Genomics and Action Strategy Priority, Center for Individualized Medicine and Mayo Clinic. Dr. Liu will be addressing updates on the treatment of breast cancer prevented at ASCO. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Liu. Thank you so much, Carolyn, uh, and thank you all for taking time out of your day to join us. I hope you and your families are all doing well. Uh, I also just wanted to thank Cancer Care and Effie for uh, sponsoring and putting on this uh, amazing teleconference. I wish I could see you all. I find the lack of faces <laughs> very dissatisfying, um, but hopefully we'll all meet sometime soon. Um, I am tasked with giving you an update of breast cancer-related data presented at ASCO 2020. Uh, breast cancer is sort of a summary of multiple different diseases under this umbrella of breast cancer. Uh, so I chose uh, different presentations and studies uh, that reflect HER2 positive breast cancer, hormone receptor positive breast cancer, and hormone receptor positive uh, HER2 uh, negative breast cancer as well, uh, and then divided this into early stage and metastatic disease. So we'll start with early stage breast cancer, which means uh, a new diagnosis of breast cancer that's confined to the breast and potentially involving lymph nodes under the arm. Uh, the most pertinent uh, study that was presented with respect to HER2-positive breast cancer was the Caitlin trial. Uh, this is a comparison of PDM1 and Progetta uh, versus trastuzumab or Herceptin and Progetta with chemotherapy, typically uh, Taxol. Uh, after giving an anthracycline-based regimen, typically adriamycin here in the United States. And this, again, was for patients with high-risk HER2-positive breast cancer. Um, high-risk is defined as um, node-positive uh, breast cancer, meaning involvement of the lymph nodes under the arm, uh, or the breast there were no lymph nodes involved um, and the tumor size was over 2 centimeters. Uh, all patients started with the initial chemotherapy being the same, which is AC. Uh, or adriamycin and cytoxin. And half the patients got uh, what we consider standard therapy, meaning Taxol, uh, Herceptin, and Progetta, or Trastuzumab and Pertuzumab are the other names. Um, and then the comparator arm, which was considered the investigational arm, was TDM1 and Pertuzumab. Uh, therapy continued for a total of a year as of the convention for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. Uh, and essentially, um, when we looked at the um, endpoints of disease-free survival, um, meaning the length of time before cancer came back, if it did come back, um, there was really no difference between these two groups. 
Um, so escalating therapy using this new drug, PDM1, uh, which is already approved in metastatic breast cancer, didn't necessarily change outcomes. But importantly, uh, within the study, they embedded uh, evaluations of quality of life. Um, if survival is not this, is the same, the quality of life is better than uh, or worse with uh, a regimen, then certainly that can guide our choices as well. Um, it turns out that using PDM1 was associated uh, with a lower risk of deterioration uh, of health status, meaning patients tended to feel better uh, if they were on the drug. Um, but if you look carefully, more patients who are receiving PDM1 either stopped therapy or had reductions of their uh, therapy during the course of the study because of side effects. So a bit of a balance, uh, but what this tells us is that PDM1 may be an option for us for certain patients. Another study looking at HER2 positive breast cancer was the question of whether or not we need anthracyclines um, in this setting. Uh, anthracyclines, again, typically in the United States, we use adriamycin, which is otherwise known as doxorubicin. Uh, and there's been a, a long recognized association between the use of these anthracyclines with a very small risk of heart toxicity or weakening the heart muscle. So if all things are created equal and we can find alternatives to not have to use adriamycin but still obtain the benefits of uh, improved outcomes, then certainly that would be the preference. So the study was called TRAIN-2, uh, and this is a study, again, looking at HER2-positive breast cancer, uh, where uh, about 400 patients were randomized to either get chemotherapy with uh, Herceptin and Fergetta. Uh, that chemotherapy was, uh, again, randomized. One group got uh, no anthracycline. Uh, in the other group did get the anthracycline. Um, total length of therapy was the same in both groups. Uh, and remarkably, outcomes were about the same um, in both groups. Um, the, many of these patients received treatment before uh, they had surgery, so we could watch tumors shrink, and an equal number of patients in both groups had tumors shrink or uh, not be present at the time of surgery. In other words, complete eradication of tumor at the time of surgery. Um, and the same number of patients, which was quite few, had recurrences um, after they finished therapy. Overall survival was also the same. So this would suggest that there is a possibility of not including anthracycline uh, in the care of uh, early stage for two positive breast cancer. With respect to hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative breast cancer, which many call triple negative breast cancer, uh, there has been uh, a long-time question of whether or not additional chemotherapy uh, might offer benefit beyond standard chemotherapy, again, in early-stage disease. A trial was done looking at patients who had uh, early-stage or non-metastatic breast cancer where they either received cytidine, which is marketed as Velota, uh, for a total of a year, or they were observed. And this study suggested that there was an improvement um, in survival with the use of tape cytobine or Zolota versus observation, meaning taking the thing. Um, that survival was in disease-free survival, not in overall survival. Um, in other words, it reduced the number of people who had cancer that came back but in terms of long-term survival and overall survival. It did not make a difference. Maybe with longer follow-up, it might. We just we need to wait and see. 
Um, many of the patients, 91% of them completed treatment, so it's a year's worth of additional chemotherapy, so it's not something to belittle. Um, and it looked like it was uh, relatively well tolerated. To be clear, this is a lower dose than it typically uh, has been used uh, previously. For hormone receptor positive breast cancer, uh, we had the alternate trial, which was looking at three different types of uh, hormone or endocrine therapy for early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer, giving the treatment before surgery. And really the hope is to de-escalate treatment and to be able to give hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients maximum endocrine therapy or anti-hormone therapy and potentially avoid chemotherapy. The three drugs that were studied, anastrozole, which is a Rimidex, Fulvestrant or Fazlodex, which is the injectable medication that's approved in metastatic disease, uh, or the combination of a Rimidex uh, and uh, Fazlodex. Patients would have a biopsy done before they started treatment, and then a biopsy uh, at about a month or four weeks after they started treatment. In those biopsies, we compared something called KI67, which is a marker of how fast the tumor cells are dividing. Um, if patients started with a higher proliferation rate, in other words, cancer cells dividing pretty rapidly, starting their endocrine therapy, and then at four weeks uh, getting a repeat biopsy and looking at that rate of cancer cell division, uh, and there was a reduction in that, then those patients tended to do better uh, if they just continued endocrine therapy. So that in itself may be a marker and a way for us to select those patients who just, quote-unquote, need endocrine therapy as opposed to the addition of chemotherapy. I'm going to switch to metastatic breast cancer in just a couple of studies. Uh, one, we uh, in triple negative breast cancer, again, which is hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative disease, uh, the focus on immunotherapy. Uh, we know that immunotherapy has revolutionized the treatment of many malignancies. Uh, in breast cancer, we do have an approval for atezolizumab and chemotherapy for people newly diagnosed with metastatic disease. Uh, we now have uh, the Keynote 355 study, which looks at pembrolizumab, which is marketed as Keytruda with chemotherapy. And this, like uh, the Impassion 130 study, which looked at atezolizumab, showed an improvement for patients who have PDL1 positive breast cancer. PDL1 is a marker uh, that would suggest uh, immunotherapy benefit. So one thing that we have to be very careful about with the various immunotherapy drugs, including Keytruda or Pembrolizumab, is they have unique side effects. These drugs work by and chemotherapy-related side effects. And then just lastly, for hormone receptor positive breast cancer, uh, the Parsifal study. So we are well aware now of the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in patients with hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, these drugs include paldociclib, ribociclib, and abemociclib, and are partnered with standard endocrine therapy. Um, meaning aromatase inhibitors or Fazlodex again. So aromatase inhibitors are pills, Fazlodex the injectable form. And the question is, is one partner better than another if you give it with, say, Pelbociclib or Ibrams is the trade name. Uh, and what Parsifal did was basically randomize patients who were supposed to uh, receive Ibrams to either receive that partnered with Fazlodex or with Letrozole or Fumara, which is an aromatase inhibitor. And the bottom line is that it didn't matter uh, that both groups did equally well. 
Um, so the type of endocrine therapy when given uh, with eye brands or pelvis liquid did not seem to matter. Certainly there may be characteristics about uh, the patient's uh, treatment before uh, development of metastases that may subsequently guide therapy. There were a whole lot of other studies that were presented at ASCO 2020. Um, I wish I had time to go through all of them. It was hard to pick selected ones um, to present to you today. Uh, but I've used up my time, uh, and I very much, again, appreciate your attention, uh, and I hope to meet you in the future. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lulu. Um, that was superb, uh, really a wonderful presentation. And I want to thank you just uh, for updating us on breast cancer treatment from ASCO. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. And Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim, College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Ronowitz will be discussing updates on the treatment of ovarian cancer presented at ASCO. And it's really my great pleasure now to Ms. Pernalovic, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ronowitz. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you for including me in this yearly ASCO update. I always find it very informative to hear from my colleagues. And I'm certainly honored to be included among this roster of outstanding speakers. I hope all of you are safe in our new normal as we manage through this pandemic. So I've been assigned to summarize the abstracts that were presented in ovarian cancer. And I divided them up into frontline, that is first-line therapy, and maintenance therapy, that is therapy that's given after the frontline therapy. Uh, there was, again, a heavy presence of PARP uh, inhibitors. These are inhibitors that prevent DNA repair of the tumor. And one of the first studies was Velacarib, which is a PARP inhibitor, um, in combination with platinum chemotherapy as frontline therapy, and then importantly continued as maintenance therapy. And the rationale behind this is that we get a very high response rate to initial therapy, and we have to figure out the challenges, how do we maintain that? And with this uh, PARP inhibitor, we significantly extended the progression-free interval. That is the time uh, that the patients remained without evidence to, of disease in newly diagnosed high-grade serous ovarian cancer, which is the most common ovarian cancer. Importantly, patients have what we call companion testing. Uh, which means that they had their tumor analyzed for mutations in the BRCA gene or homologous repair deficiency, which is graded. And it, by looking at those mutations or the um, HRD grading, one can now predict what your response will be to the PARP inhibitors. So um, it, it's a very good idea for patients to ask about companion testing when they're going to be given a PARP inhibitor. Another PARP inhibitor was Alaparib, which has been approved as maintenance therapy in combination with Bevacizumab, which is an anti-angiogenesis agent, following a complete response or a partial response to first-line platinum-based therapy. The treatment was intended for those patients, again, with the homologous recombination deficiency positive status, 
um, and that could be the BRCA mutation or the HRD uh, graded showing genomic instability. The approval was based on this phase three PAOLA-1 trial, which showed not only statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival, but what I would uh, emphasize is clinically important. Another trial using CARBs was Neraparib for first-line maintenance therapy. And again, maintenance therapy is to consolidate the response seen after initial therapy uh, to make that, that uh, response a more durable response. And Neraparib has been approved for maintenance therapy following first-line platinum-based therapy. And this approval was based on the PRIMA trial, where patients following first-line platinum-based therapy were randomized to maintenance neraparib versus placebo. And again, the improvement was not only statistically significant, but was clinically significant. So again, this treatment is intended for those patients with homologous recombination deficiency positive status, which is either a BRCA mutation or showing genomic um, instability for the HDR. And I'd like to next draw our attention to recurrent ovarian cancer, that is those patients who have had a response to initial therapy but develop recurrent disease. And there was a phase two called SOLO2 ANGOT OV21 trial, which found that patients with a BRCA mutation and, pl and platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer, maintenance of lacrib, again, another the PARC again, prolonged their median overall survival as compared with placebo. So the alacrib is not only showing, or the PARC inhibitors are not only showing activity in the primary setting, but also in the recurrent setting. This is an important class of drugs. Uh, then the NRG, which is a cooperative group, compared alacrib with sidorinib and platinum-based therapy. And this was based on a um, trial that was originally done in Boston, but this was done in much larger numbers in platinum-sensitive patients who had recurrent ovarian cancer. However, um, this trial did not meet its um, progression-free survival endpoint. So the conclusion was that adding sidorinib in a larger trial did not um, duplicate the effects that were seen in the smaller trial. There's also a phase two trial of cooperative groups, um, which, which again is the NSGO, AVA, NOVA, uh, two, ANGOT, OV24 trial, which compared neraparib, which again is a PARC inhibitor, with bevacizumab versus neraparib alone, and this is in recurrent platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer. And again, the results showed not only statistically significant um, improvement in progression-free survival, but what we would consider clinically important in platinum-sensitive relapsed ovarian cancer. Uh, then there were some new drugs that were um, looked at, and for those who have been following the uh, weak kinase inhibitor story, uh, a weak kinase inhibitor with, was combined with carboplatin and paclitaxel in women with P53 mutated ovarian cancer which is the most common mutation in ovarian cancer, and most patients do demonstrate a P53 mutation. And this study demonstrated potential, 
and warrants further testing with the WE kinase inhibitors. So this is one where we see a drug in development uh, that will be added to our armamentarium. And then the Keynote 100 trial uh, was a trial of a PD-L1 uh, Pembro as a single agent in advanced um, recurrent ovarian cancer. And they were able to correlate responses with the PDL1 expression, making that a predictive marker. So what these, these studies have shown in aggregate is the importance of these companion studies in helping us select uh, the right drug for the right patient. Um, then there was another trial of a drug, it's kind of um, a Trojan horse um, that is used, um, which is uh, a folate inhibitor with um, uh, bevacizumab. And what happens is the drug is, is um, hooks onto the folate receptor on the ovarian cancer cell, and then the drug goes inside and releases the active chemotherapy. So that's the Trojan horse analogy. And that study showed, again, um, encouraging results in platinum-sensitive and, importantly, in platinum-resistant patients. That's been a very tough group. So this is something, again, to watch. And then for, for um, not for ASCO, but for AACR, uh, I wanted to bring up a non-chemotherapy study that I found intriguing. Uh, it was a study from Hopkins, very large study, which demonstrated that women on statins, and they were on the lipophilic statins, uh, had better survival as compared to those not on statins. The biologic rationale for the study was based on statins inhibiting a pathway which affects downstream products implicated in tumor genesis. So this is something I think uh, is very exciting. Uh, the statins have been very well tolerated, and it would be great to have something um, that's been commonly prescribed to large numbers of patients to be useful in oncology and particularly in ovarian cancer. So my take home for the, for the meeting was I was disappointed that I couldn't see my colleagues in person, um, and I was disappointed that we couldn't have the camaraderie and the give and take um, and the QA that we usually have. But there were clearly advances in ovarian cancer, which included new drugs, new mechanisms. And these, these trials uh, demonstrate, again, the importance of patient enrollment in clinical trials. So I would like to thank all of the patients on this call for their willingness to partner with their physicians and enroll in clinical trials. It has been my privilege to have presented the ASCO and 1AACR update in ovarian cancer. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That really is superb and a really wonderful presentation. And actually, wonderful, um, that, that last study that you mentioned, uh, very interesting. And, of course, the call out for everyone to think about, and we really thank all of you on the call today who have participated in clinical trials, have thought about trials, discussed them with your physician. They really do move the field forward. So thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. And our next speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center 
prostate and urologic diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's also a professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Ross College of Cornell University. And Dr. Slobin will be presenting updates on the treatment of prostate cancer presented at ASCO. It's really now my great pleasure to promote my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slobin. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, it's always a challenge every year to come up with uh, what the highlights really have been in one's area of, of expertise. But all I can tell you right now that if you talk to another colleague, that other colleague may have other areas that uh, he or she thought were really pivotal in the treatment of prostate cancer. As usual, there's always something new and exciting. I've actually broken it down to three areas, one that involves the upfront or what we call neoadjuvant treatment of prostate cancer, that is patients who are newly diagnosed and are scheduled to go for surgery but have certain features that put them at risk of disease relapse. The second approach, again, has to do with uh, genomic profiling and to underscore the need of genomic profiling along with uh, companion studies or imaging. And the third, and I thought really was rather interesting this year, has to deal with serenostics. Now, it's a term that is derived from a combination of words, essentially therapeutics and diagnostics, hence serenostics. It's really, uh, by definition, a combination of a radioactive drug that will quote-unquote diagnose and then another drug that may be hooked up or followed to it that's also radioactive but can deliver a therapy. It's a new field in medicine, and essentially it's how do we diagnose through imaging and administer concurrently therapy in a single package. So an interesting study that really uh, outlined the serenostic approach was a randomized phase two trial, so phase two is really looking for efficacy, that looked at a compound called lutetium-177 that's hooked up to a small molecule that essentially travels to and binds to a marker that many of us know about in prostate cancer called prostate-specific membrane antigen. We know that as the disease becomes more resistant to therapies, that this molecule is more widely expressed on the prostate cancer cells. But what's interesting is that lutetium-177 has been used as a diagnostic agent, meaning that we're looking for cells that express PSMA that has been appropriately used. But they are now using it to really deliver therapy, which means looking or trying to deliver just radio radiation to sites of active disease that express PSMA. And what they did that was rather unusual is they compared it with a standard of care chemotherapy in the second line setting, meaning after you fail docetaxel, the second FDA approved treatment is a drug or a chemotherapy drug called cabazitaxel or gyptana. And this was specifically for patients who failed docetaxel and had castration resistant disease. Essentially what they did was they split the group of patients into two groups. One was a, uh, a group of patients who just received standard of care second-line cabazitaxel, uh, and the second were patients who just received the lutetium PSMA uh, for a grand total of every six weeks for up to six treatments, and then they were followed. And for those patients who underwent imaging, they not only went 
routine PSMA imaging, but they also did what we call FDG or fluorodeoxyglucose PET imaging as well, with the idea of trying to look at sites that were really, quote unquote, hot. And by hot meaning that there's a lot of radioactivity against a particular marker, suggesting that the disease was very active there. So on FDG PET, and again, fluorodeoxyglucose is a uh, an agent or uh, a, a sugar, if you will, that is only used by the cancer cells that work for a very different kind of metabolism in which to grow. So if you had it very hot on the FDG, one would hope that it would also be the same area that is expressing PSA, but that is not always the case. And they did a very fine job of showing discordancy that you can still have PSMA positive sites on scans, but not every site was in fact positive for PSMA. Some of the FDG PET scans showed some areas that corresponded to where it was hot with the PSMA. But in general, it's to give you an idea that there are a lot of ways that we can determine what might be appropriate targets uh, for additional therapies. So their primary endpoint essentially was to look at PSA response. And that was defined as a 50% or greater reduction from their baseline PSA. And the long and short was, and very unexpected, was that the patients who were treated with the lutetium conjugate, if you will, actually had a much more dramatic uh, PSMA response compared with that of patients who got the chemotherapy. Very, very unexpected. And even though it was small and it's still about a year out, they actually found that if you look at the progression-free survival, we're not talking about survival, but in terms of how long it took for somebody's disease to progress, there was actually a benefit, if you will, in the lutetium PSMA. So this was a much more active compound than expected. It did not have a lot of, uh, a lot of um, side effects that you would often see with PSMA, uh, excuse me, with chemotherapy alone, but, you know, it, it offers a potential new class of, of effective therapies for men who have metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Very interesting, still needs to be uh, verified in much larger studies. Now, what about neoadjuvant? Well, neoadjuvant means that we treat before definitive therapy. And then, as you know, uh, for example, if we're treating with radiation, this, the various studies have shown that if we give hormones uh, along uh, with uh, a drug called abiraterone, for example, and radiation, followed after radiation by the addition of these hormonal agents, that patients actually do very well. And that's usually for patients who have what we call high-risk disease at diagnosis. It does not mean high risk of death. It means high risk of disease relapse. And these are patients who present with PSAs greater than 20, or high-grade lesions such as Gleason 8, 9, 10, or big, big, gigantic, bulky prostates. And in some cases, patients whose disease has spread beyond the confines of the prostate and have gone toward the seminal vesicles. So there had been a number of studies suggesting that the combination of second-generation antigen receptor inhibitors, such as either enzalutamide or abiraterone, given together along with an angiogen deprivation therapy agent, such as Lupron, for example, that you would actually find that the outcome might be better 
in terms of getting what we call a pathologic complete response, meaning that all the cancer goes away and you find that when you take the patient to surgery, versus if you just gave the Lupron alone along with one of those two agents. And what was very interesting about this is that for those patients who fit the category of high risk and received abiraterone, uh, a drug very similar to enzalutamide called apalutamide, along with Lupron, that their response rates appear to be much more durable in these uh, combination arms than if you uh, use either one alone. Now, this is proof of concept. The idea here is to try to improve long-term outcomes and disease control. But this is the first in a series of abstracts that were presented showing different combinations that seem to have some impact uh, on the actual disease uh, rate of relapse. Along the lines of uh, immunologic, just very briefly, there are some interesting compounds that are out there. There's a class of drugs called protein degraders, which are very small molecules that are engineered to induce the degradation or the destruction of certain uh, disease-causing proteins. And a very nice uh, report was looking at patients who had different um, expressions of genomic abnormalities, in particular looking at increasing or decreased expression of the androgen receptor, which many of you know is really the heart of what drives prostate cancer. But they looked at a lot of patients and found that it was safe and interestingly actually saw very profound changes in patients who had lymph node disease as well as changes in PS, uh, PSA. Uh, we're getting very close to time, but I do want to mention two things, and that is the continued use of radium-223, which many of you know is the first radiopharmaceutical that uh, was um, uh, ever developed that actually was reported to have a survival benefit. And it was used or is used for symptomatic patients, and symptoms could be pain, it could be disease-induced anemia and the like. But they went back, and these are the people who originally uh, device or the original trial, and they went back over one, one institution with a four-year audit to determine how these patients did years later and what were the most important things in showing how people benefited to, with radium. So in general, most people tolerated it well. Uh, some people did have a PSA response, as indicated by a greater than 50% drop, and most of us know that that's not the case. We're really treating symptomatic patients, and that drop in PSA was only seen in 11% of patients. However, it's interesting to note that uh, the alkaline phosphatase does drop in greater than 50% of the patients, suggesting that there is still a continued benefit of the drug, and also the treatment seems to be more effective when given at earlier times when the patient suddenly becomes uh, castration resistant. And finally, getting back to our friend lutetium, there was some concern about we're giving all these radioactive pharmaceuticals. Uh, what happens when you treat somebody for their symptomatic disease with radium? Could you go back 
and maybe treat their cancer with a completely different radionuclide. And so this was a report called the Reassure that was a global perspective observational study that looked at radium, which I just told you about, and those patients who, despite having had radium, which is a radiopharmaceutical, they went on to receive lutetium PSMA to deliver more radiation for therapy. And as it turns out that uh, patients still did well, even though they had been previously treated with this other pharmaceutical and was safe. So essentially what we have this year is a really an open vista of how we can treat with multiple modalities whether or multiple combinations, both at uh, early diagnosis in the neoadjuvant setting and now with what we call serenostics. So look forward to, looking forward to next year when we really have more definitive information. Thank you very much, and back to you, Carolyn. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Slogan. A superb presentation, really. A lot of wonderful information for uh, for men living with prostate cancer, a lot of new uh, treatments. So thank you very much and a great job. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Slogan. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Dr. Bruce is the Edgar M. Hospian Professor of Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director of Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, and Co-Director Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce will be addressing updates on the treatment of brain cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, you know, the recent ASCO meeting highlighted a, a number of really exciting, innovative clinical trials for patients with brain tumors. Now, this really is a very productive and exciting time for brain tumor research. As you probably know, the standard treatment for patients with glioblastomas is to first surgically remove them as completely as possible, then follow with a six-week course of radiation and then chemotherapy with a drug called Temidor. And even though most patients respond well to standard treatment, these tumors generally grow back at some point. And because of this tendency to grow back, newer and better experimental treatments are needed. And that, that's why the ASCO meetings are so important. They provide an outlet for investigators to discuss the new treatments in the research community. Probably the most exciting area in brain tumor research right now involves immunotherapy. And immunotherapies are treatments that use the patient's own immune system to help fight the tumor. So to understand how immunotherapy works, think of when you get an infection, such as a virus or a bacteria. Your body mounts a vigorous immune response that gets rid of the infection. A similar thing happens when patients have tumors. The immune response gets rid of the tumor cells because they're seen as foreign invaders like a bacteria or a virus. However, the problem is that the immune system is generally not strong enough to overcome rapidly growing tumors. So a growing area of research then involves looking for ways to boost the immune system in tumors. And one of the more Promising immunotherapy treatments involves a group of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors. You've probably heard that term. Checkpoint inhibitors work by releasing a mechanism that holds back the body's immune response. And by doing so, these drugs help the immune system to attack tumor cells. You may have heard about the testing of checkpoint inhibitors because 
they've been successful in patients with skin cancers, uh, malignant melanomas. But prior studies have shown that checkpoint inhibitors are probably not going to be effective if they're just given by themselves. Therefore, a number of studies have looked at using checkpoint inhibitors in combination with other drugs. Now, in a study out of Johns Hopkins, two different checkpoint inhibitors were used together. One was an antibody which blocks the LAG3 checkpoint molecule. That's a, a specific type of checkpoint molecule. And this was tested with another checkpoint inhibitor, the, the PD-1 inhibitor, which is a more familiar checkpoint inhibitor. Anyway, this combination of checkpoint inhibitors was designed to maximize those immunological effects. And the early results look very promising, but statistically there are, number, there are insufficient numbers to really draw any, any long-term conclusions. But it just begins to highlight the type of work that's being done. Similarly, there was another study out of Belgium that combined two checkpoint inhibitors. They did a phase one clinical trial where the two, two different checkpoint inhibitors were delivered directly into the tumor bed after the tumor had been removed. At surgery, the tumor was removed and they, they injected these checkpoint inhibitors right into the tumor bed. And with, the idea was that the immunotherapy effects would be more efficient if they were given directly into the tumor bed. And so this was sort of a, a bit of a groundbreaking experiment, but the preliminary results showed some favorable effects in a number of patients, and this will require some really long-term studies to validate whether, whether those are really uh, or not. Now, another study came out of Brigham Hospital in Boston using a checkpoint inhibitor in combination with uh, IL-12 delivered directly into the tumor. Now, IL-12 is a protein that is actually made by immune cells to attack tumors. So in the study, they used a, a virus that actually releases IL-12. They injected this IL-12 virus into the brain around the tumor after the tumor was removed and then gave the checkpoint inhibitor. So the, this study showed some very favorable responses, but they were using MRI scans to check the response, and, and basically it was a little difficult to tell whether these were really true treatment responses or whether it was something called pseudoprogression, where where the tumor cell or where the tumors look a little different on the MRI scan, but they are still uh, not not actually treated. Uh, but the treatment showed that that uh, the study showed the treatment was safe, and these promising results are leading to uh, larger studies. Um, you know, as I previously mentioned, these, these uh, standard treatment for glioblastoma is radiation therapy and temozolomide. And previous studies have shown that checkpoint inhibitors actually work better if they're given with radiation. So it turns out that radiation is thought to be synergistic or helpful with immunotherapy. So it actually makes logical sense to give these checkpoint inhibitors at the time that radiation is being given. So radiation is usually given uh, at the time of initial diagnosis. And so on this basis, two separate, two separate studies looked at checkpoint inhibitors in newly diagnosed glioblastoma patients since they were going to be getting standard treatment with radiation and chemotherapy. Now, in, in a study from the Dana-Farber Institute in Boston, 
they use synthetic or man-made vaccines, DNA vaccines, that were given in combination with these checkpoint inhibitors to patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma and then gave them their radiation and chemotherapy. What they showed was that this treatment was tolerated very well without any bad side effects, and although it's too soon to tell whether or not this is an effective treatment, the researchers did some blood tests as a way to monitor treatment. They showed that the immunotherapy was having the desired effect, at least as measured by the immune cells in the blood. Now, this study will have to be monitored carefully, but hopefully the future studies will show that this actually leads to a, a good patient outcome. A similar trial was out of MD Anderson in Houston, where they looked at a drug called atezolizumab, which blocks the PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor. And this trial was really looking at safety and clinical efficacy of this drug with radiation and tenazolamide, and they saw some modest improvements in how long it took for the tumors to grow back. And their conclusion was that this is a promising treatment, but would also need future studies. The last immunotherapy that I thought was worth mentioning was an interesting trial out of Switzerland where glioblastomas were targeted with novel, what we call immunocytokines. But rather than, given, rather than given a drug that directly kills tumor cells the way standard chemotherapy works, the idea here was to use these immunocytokines to target the brain microenvironment around the tumor. So it alters the brain tissue around the tumor to basically change it from one that is blocking immune function to one that's enhancing immune function. And in this study, they gave an, the antibody that delivered three different cytokines, which are proteins that enhance inflammation in a way that should help eliminate tumor cells. They tested this in just three patients, but found that it was safe and well-tolerated. So this is a preliminary study, and with these results, they'll be able to expand it to a larger number of patients and really test how well it's working. So uh, switching gears now, let's talk about some new findings in the standard chemotherapy front. There were two interesting studies using new anti-tumor agents. One was from Buffalo that looked at what is called a nitrone compound, which is uh, known to block tumor cells from multiplying. And this drug also blocks angiogenesis or blood vessel development, the net result being that you, you kill tumor cells. And the results of this study were promising and is now being looked at in newly diagnosed patients. Another interesting chemotherapy study in recurrent glioblastoma patients, which is a very strong small molecule inhibitor of the processes that are responsible for, for tumor growth. So it, it, it attacks the biology of the tumor. And the benefit of this drug is that it can be taken orally as a pill. It's easy to tolerate it, and it penetrates very well into the brain, which many drugs don't. And this is a phase two trial and is interesting and should lead to an expansion in a, in a larger clinical trial. Now, I want to finish up by telling you about some interesting studies looking at the basic science of gliomas and trying to look at how the genetic makeup of the tumor affects such things as survival and response to treatment. One of the most interesting studies came out of Iowa where they looked at what we call genome-wide methylation analysis in a group of glioblastoma patients that were long-term survivors. And 
this this is, is a way of analyzing the the genetics or the the DNA in these tumors to see what is causing the tumors to grow. And they chose patients who are long-term survivors, figuring if they can figure out what's going on in the long-term survivors, they may get some insight into what causes the tumors to grow. And so they were able to correlate this good survival with a variety of, of genetic changes in the tumor that had to do with a process called methylation. And these studies are important because they give us insight into the genetic changes responsible for causing tumors to grow and, and form. And the hope is that scientists can use this information to develop new treatments and new targets. Finally, I just want to end by recommending all patients and their families consider looking for brain tumor specialists when trying to find the best treatments. These specialists are often associated with academic medical centers where brain tumor teams work together for aggressive treatments and new treatments that may be helpful. Also, groups like cancer care are important because they provide support and information for patients who are looking for answers when faced with these challenging tumors. You should know that there are some outstanding laboratories and researchers who are working with glioblastomas and are making headway with some very sophisticated and clever ideas. So there's more optimism now for finding better treatments and improving the quality of life than there really has ever been before. And so I'll, I'll stop with that, and thank you once again for allowing me to participate in this panel. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. Uh, outstanding presentation and so much information, and really, um, I think of so much really that's new, and people can look forward to hearing more um, and, and, to, and talking with their healthcare team about all of the newer treatments. And also, I think you made the most important point of really going to a center that specializes in treating brain tumors is really important as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Masikowicz. Dr. Masikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology, and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Masikowicz will be addressing updates on the treatment of oral, head, and neck cancer presented at ASCO. It's now my pleasure, my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masikowicz. Hi, uh, so good, uh, good afternoon. Actually, I'm calling from New York, so it's already afternoon. So just want to um, welcome the extensive panel of experts. And uh, it's also educational for us, I think, experts to learn from other experts in the field because there are some crossing ideas that we can use and move the demo science forward. So I want to thank them. I want to thank the audience, but also I just want to point out something that was pointed out multiple, multiple times. Uh, many times we present those very promising ideas, promising agents, uh, new updates and uh, in clinical trials. And those are the agents that many kinds of strategies that are not available uh, as a part of the standard of Those are experimental. This is something that is on the horizon. And without your participation, we're not going to be able to do it. So I think there is a benefit for us as a doctors to help our patients. Uh, there is a benefit for other patients that are in similar situation, but there is a direct benefit even for you because obviously if you're going to eat someone, you're going to see any of us, any doctor, I think you should ask for a clinical trial because you can be part of the very, very promising treatment strategy. So this is sort of like a my manifesto for all of you guys as you're going to consider different treatment options, ask for clinical trial because I think this is something that should, should be strongly considered. I'm going to be talking about head and neck cancer. This is the first study I want to uh, discuss is the ECO331-1 ACLIN study. 
So put things in perspective, this is a study that addressed patients that are positive for HPV autoparental cancer carcinoma. HPV is a virus, it's a human popular virus. Most of the time it's a 16 types that's considered a high risk, and this is the type of virus that can lead into development of the autoparental carcinoma. What we know about autoparental carcinoma, that there are two types, uh, and with different biology. The one type is the one that's caused by the virus with excellent prognosis. No matter which treatment strategy, um, the doctor is going to select most of those patients do absolutely amazing, and the outcome is very, very promising. On the other hand, we have patients that are heavy smokers, and they don't have the virus, they're HPV negative. And even though we do have treatment strategies for those, uh, the outcome is not as good as the first group. So having this in mind, now we treat both groups of patients the same way, because this is the current standard of care. So you can ask the question, maybe we should escalate or intensify the treatment for the patients that they're doing not as good, those are the HPV negatives, but maybe we should consider giving less treatment to the patients that have HPV positive tumor and those patients that have excellent prognosis, because with all respect to any tools that we use in oncology, many times, many times they have side effects. Some of them are very uh, short-lasting, but some of them are very corny, something that you can be subjected for the rest of your life. And in head and neck cancer, we use chemotherapy and radiation, and what you can be left with uh, after the successful treatment, that you can have some difficulty swallowing, you can have some difficulty with the teeth, you can have some dryness of the mouth. So those are the functions that are very important in the quality of life. So by giving you less treatment that's going to translate into less toxicity, I think it's a good endpoint. So in this study, the rationale was, the, question, the main question was, can we give less treatment to highly selected patients with HPV positive tumors for the ones that the outcome is excellent? And by giving them less treatment, obviously the gain would be that we're going to have less side effects and more complications down the line. But will we, as doctors, compromise their outcome? Because obviously we don't want, we are obviously to do it. We want our patients to live longer. So in this study, what they came up with was they said, we're going to check all the patients that are surgical candidates. We're going to operate on the autoharyngeal cancer, and they use the, the robotic approach. It's called TORS. And all the patients are HPV-positive patients. And based on the pre-specified criteria that was based on the pathology report, they divided those patients in three groups. Low risk, intermediate risk, and the high risk. As you can imagine, the low risk are the ones that obviously the outcome probably is very good. Intermediate is intermediate, and the high risk is higher. And in all those groups, they decided we're going to do less. We're going to give less treatment to the current standard of care with the similar scenario. So in the low risk, for example, they said we're not going to do anything after the surgery. We think that the surgery is going to be sufficient. And for many patients in this group, we do radiation after. And what we found after about two years of follow-up, those, those patients, they do excellent. So probably they don't need the surgery. Obviously, we have to still follow up those patients for a longer time to confirm this. But as of now, it looks very promising, meaning that we're not compromising throughout them. So you can imagine if you had the surgery done and you don't need anything after, no radiation, nothing, that means you're not going to be subjected to inconvenience of the getting this treatment, but also you're not going to get any side effects of this treatment. And the intermediate group, the patients were randomized. 
the scientists, they said, we're going to give one fusion to a very low dose of radiation that's going to be about 50 gray, and the standard is 60 to 66, to put things in perspective. And the other group is going to randomize to a higher dose of radiation, which is 60, but still lower than the standard. Because at that time, we don't know how low we can go in terms of uh, going down the dose of, dose of radiation without compromising the patient's outcome. And interestingly, both doses, high and low, deliver almost the same results. So what we learn from this, we can, in the future, as it's going to be confirmed, obviously, later on, that consider giving patients lower dose of radiation without chemotherapy. So not only uh, you, you don't need chemotherapy in the settings, but also you can receive the lower dose of radiation. That's going to, again, translate into less dryness of the mouth, less problem swallowing, uh, and less fibrosis, which is the stiffness of the neck. So this study looks very promising, and those are very promising results. And again, if you, at this moment, as you're listening to us, and if you couldn't participate in the clinical trial, there are still some ongoing studies that use similar strategies. It's called de-anticipation or de-escalation of the, of the treatment because we're trying to prove by giving less, we can still give you the excellent outcome. And by giving less, obviously, we can spur you some additional flexibility. So that was very, very promising. The second study that I want to discuss is something that we do in head and cancer, especially in locally advanced settings. So meaning that this is a cancer that many times can be resected or cannot be resected. And those patients many times need the treatment after, which is radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. So what they, there's this ongoing debate, and I think it's still to some extent ongoing, that how we can give chemotherapy. In head and neck cancer, we give chemotherapy, we call it concurrently, meaning at the same time as we're giving radiation. And the purpose of this, why we don't do this at the same time, is because the radiation kind of kills the cancer, but chemotherapy makes the cancer sensitive to the radiation, so the radiation works better. So that's why it only makes sense to give chemotherapy during the radiation, and it was proven that this is the best strategy in the compelling studies. And the drug that we use is called cisplatin. It's a chemotherapy medication. And there is an ongoing debate what's the best way to give this chemotherapy agent during radiation. The current standard of care is that you should give this as a bolus. So you should give it this every three weeks, time three, during the radiation. But you can imagine if you give it as a bolus, you're giving it a higher dose. So for some um, doctors, it was um, too challenging, too toxic, too detrimental for the patient. Uh, so that was an ongoing question. But there was a convenience because you don't have to uh, get this chemotherapy maybe weekly or daily. And there was the other ongoing trend that uh, chemotherapy was given once a week during the radiation with the same purpose. And what this study from Japan showed, and it was the non-inferiority study, meaning the study was not designed to prove that one is better, that they equal, even though numerically it looks like that the weekly dose was better than the every three week dose. So not only patients they did better, but obviously um, and it was more convenient for some of those patients because they were getting the, the lower dose. So right now I think some physicians, they may still advocate for the higher dose because there is still the matter of debate. Some previous studies showed some conflicting results, but I think that was a kind of very informative studies for us 
medical oncologist is doing uh, the head and neck patch, we think that the weekly dose, 40 milligrams per meter square, is as good as the every three weeks dose, or maybe slightly better. But obviously, some other studies confirming those results will be very, very helpful. Then I want to then I want to move uh, to uh, other abstracts. So something that we do in medical oncology many times, and this is kind of the newer trend, there are some genetic abnormalities that we de detect in certain cancers. Historically, the problem was with those mutations that, A, we couldn't match those mutations with the drug. It's sort of like a lock and the key. When the drug has the lock, which is the mutation, you have to find the perfect key to turn off the cancer. And it cannot be just a kind of a similar copy. It has to be exact copy. It has to be 100% matched. Because you can imagine, if you're going to be standing with the similar copy of your key in front of your door, you're going to try to jiggle. You're not going to be open the door. It's the same situation. The second problem that we had in oncology is that some of these mutations, a lot, are not very common. So if they're not very common, there is not so much interest from the uh, manufacturer, from, from pharma, to kind of detect those because there is a small number of patients having those mutations. But I think I have to give credit now to the to industry because there is some emphasis and there is some effort to even focus on types of cancers that obviously are not very common. And the regulatory FDA helps them by giving them some kind of an easier way to have those drugs approved. So in head and neck, we have the HPV. There's no significant mutation that would guide us or tell us that there are some patients that can have the better outcome. And what was presented, there was something called HRAS mutation. And they had patients with metastatic disease, so they're the head and neck cancer, and they used the drug, drug Cytophoranate, and it looks very promising. So this is the drug that is matched with the mutation. So I would encourage you, if you're in a situation that you have the recurrent metastatic disease, that the doctors, obviously, they're going to look for those trials, and eventually you can be part of this. And the last thing that I want to discuss is some emphasis on what we call it uh, uh, tools that are going to help us to select the patient. So you know that many times we need those signatures. We say we need some kind of the information to know that the treatment that we're about to give is going to work or not. So this is something that's going to, that's going to help us. It's like a tool. And with immunotherapy that was discussed before, so obviously immunotherapy, this is the form of the treatment that you're asking your own body, your own immune system to find the cancer because your body is kind of tricked. Your body cannot see the cancer. The cancer becomes invisible. So by enhancing, obviously asking that not only you're going to find this cancer, and then you're going to fight using your immune system. So the question is how you can determine that this strategy, such as immunotherapy, is going to be able to see the cancer. So you kind of have to give your, your body kind of a magnifying glass or kind of equipment, some kind of a tool, or see which kind of cancer is going to be obviously uh, addressed by this treatment. So there's something called TMB. Uh, and basically what it is, it kind of gives us the number of how many mutations your cancer has. And as you can imagine, mutation is something abnormal. This is something that is unique. That kind of determines that the cancer is way different than the surrounding tissue. So the analogy is sort of when you go into a house and let's say everybody has some kind of a great you know, outfit 
And if somebody's going to walk into this crowd with the rest outside, you're going to be able to spell it out because it looks different. So the same thing is that we know if we're going to test the cancer for this called TMD and we're going to determine the mutation load is going to be high, that means that this cancer is way different than surrounding tissue, so the immunotherapy can be promising. Is it the tool that we use now? Is this is something that's FDA approved? No. I think all of us medical oncologists, we're looking for the signatures and different kind of tools to make sure that the immunotherapy that is kind of storming through our doors and it looks so promising, we want to make sure it's going to work because still, even though the results are very promising, this treatment doesn't work for everybody. So we just want to kind of enhance the effectiveness of this treatment. So this is, uh, uh, in terms of the uh, highlights for, for us, it's extremely hard to select and discuss all of them, and obviously select the ones that are going to be important, but in my opinion, those are the most important because they kind of very close to be used or utilized in clinical practice. And again, I want to thank everybody. Uh, that was an amazing journey uh, with Scotland uh, and the rest of the panel. I've been doing this for many years, and I would like to encourage you to come back for any updates for ASCO uh, next year, even though despite the challenges with COVID-19. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mr. Kutz. You're outstanding. A wonderful presentation um, and wonderful, uh, really call out about clinical trials and, you know, all the new research that's going on and just that, uh, and yes, we do hope to see everybody here. And we, we actually go, um, next year comes around so quickly and, um, and there'll be so much more information uh, that you'll all be getting as well. And you'll be getting it in between as well. So thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Catherine Thornton. Dr. Thornton is medical oncologist, bone and soft tissue sarcoma, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Thornton is going to be presenting an update on the treatment of sarcoma presented at ASCO, and she is also going to wrap up part one of this program. Um, and I'm going to turn this program now over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Thornton, who actually is in a very unique position to kind of look at not only the treatment of sarcoma, but to look at what we've discussed throughout the entire call. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Thornton. Thank you, uh, Carolyn, and I wanted to thank uh, Dr. Mesner and the Cancer Care Team for the opportunity to present the highlights of the ASCO 2020 scientific session for the sarcoma track. First and foremost, I want to commend ASCO for really pulling off what I think is the, the biggest study um, thus far, which is presenting this enormous conference in a virtual manner. In rather short notice, ASCO was able to pull this together, and there were some foibles along the way, but uh, it definitely paved the way for future conferences to come, and I think we really learned a lot, as we do from all of the studies that we've been presenting today. For the sarcoma patients on the call, you likely are familiar with uh, what sarcoma is, but for those diehard people who have hung on the line, let me just give you a few sentences about what, uh, what is sarcoma. Sarcoma are a vast array of many tumors that can behave as differently from one another as breast and colon and, and brain cancer. Um, they arise from musculoskeletal tissues, and there's over a hundred different subtypes. And I'm going to touch upon some of the studies that I found the most interesting from ASCO this year. 
Given the rarity of sarcoma, coupled with the many different subtypes, it's always been challenging to conduct well-designed studies. But I'm always amazed when my community of uh, passionate caretakers, coupled with the amazing patients like yourselves, um, that we can make these studies happen. I thought one of the most intriguing aspects of this 2020 sarcoma session was not so much the new drugs that were coming down the pike, although that is certainly promising and important, but some of the studies presented really, um, I think, will be practice-changing types of studies and alter how we will do things down the road, uh, both here in the U.S. and across the world. The first studies I want to uh, grapple with are the GIST studies. This is gastrointestinal tumors. There was an update to the Swedish sarcoma group and German sarcoma group's adjuvant study of imatinib, uh, three years versus one year, and as I always tell my GIST patients when they come to see me, ask me next year if there's another update, because this is constantly evolving over time. What is the appropriate length of time for uh, a matinib post-surgical resection of a GIST tumor? And now that we have 10 years of follow-up time, it still seems that the three years we're seeing a good survival advantage over one year of a matinib. And uh, I look forward to coming years where we might learn that perhaps longer therapy is uh, necessary versus three years in and of itself. I also want to highlight Dr. Chi and colleagues' um, really interesting study of the MEC-162 drug, benimetinib, which is a MAC kinase and kit inhibitor. This is being paired with a matinib, and it was a single-arm study, but amazingly, um, almost the entire group of patients treated on this single-arm study so far have had a really um, good response with the majority of patients having shrinkage of their tumor more than 30%, and I say that that's quite striking. And, um, you know, it'll remain to be seen whether this is the combination therapy doing this or a matinib alone. And I look forward to seeing hopefully a head-to-head -head study down the road looking at uh, that combination. Some uh, really take-home just studies, uh, the Invictus study, which concludes uh, this is looking at retretinib in the uh, fourth-line setting for metastatic gist. And um, this actually ultimately led to the approval of this drug just a couple of months ago. So uh, I applaud Dr. George and Dr. Heinrich and colleagues for that study. Um, and lastly, I think a really uh, quiet but very important study is the role of adjuvant and matinib dose um, in radically resected GIST harboring a kit exon 9 mutation. Um, in the metastatic setting, it is known that we usually double the dose of imatinib in these patients um, to a total of 800 milligrams. So this study was looking ra at rather the adjuvant or surgical setting, whether 400 milligrams was just as good as 800 milligrams. And we didn't see any differences in survival between the two doses, which would, to me would say that I think 400 milligrams is appropriate in the adjuvant setting for exon 9 mutations. I'm going to turn away from GIST, the most common uh, GI sarcoma, to just soft tissue sarcomas in general. 
and highlight the uh, Japanese study from Tanaka and colleagues that looked at the randomized phase 2-3 study comparing perioperative doxorubicin plus ribosomide versus gemcitabine and docetaxel. The anticipation of this study was that Gentax would be as good as docs-ibos with potentially less long-term toxicity, and that would be a really great finding. This was a non-inferiority study, and ultimately they found that AI still will remain the standard of care as um, the docsorubicin-ibosomide regimen was to, um, better than in had a better overall survival than gemcitabine and docetaxel, and this sort of um, was recapitulated in another study from the Italian sarcoma group, looking at chemotherapy tailored histology tailored chemotherapy um, for um, several different subtypes of sarcoma, and again um, the histology tailored regimens did not improve the outcomes, and we are still going to rely upon doxorubicin and iphosphide as the first-line standard of care. Our French uh, sarcoma colleagues um, reported the uh, soft tissue sarcoma study of phase two of doxorubicin in combination of with trabecidin is first-line treatment of patients with metastatic uterine leiomyosarcoma and soft tissue leiomyosarcoma. It's a single-arm study showing some really promising overall uh, survival, uh, length of times, as well as progression-free survival. Um, and so we'll have to see whether, you know, the combination arm will be warranted or rather just uh, lining up our therapies. And I'm sure that that will be looked at in a head-to-head -head study down the road, given their findings. Um, next, I want to move on to um, bone sarcoma studies, which I found really exciting. Um, the first one I'm going to mention is the Euro-Ewing study that was what I kind of look at as the, the World Cup of uh, sarcoma studies, and that it was looking at the comparison between VDC-IE chemotherapy, which is what we use as standard chemo for Ewing sarcoma in the U.S., um, compared to VIDE, which is really the standard backbone chemotherapy they use um, in Europe primarily, but in other places uh, globally. And um, this was a head-to-head -head study and really showed at the end of the day that the VDC-IE chemotherapy was superior to VIDE in both event-free survival and overall survival. I think this is a really important study because um, I think this could potentially be practice-changing and, um, and allow for a uniform that a uh, uniform backbone for Ewing therapy to be used globally, which I think will uh, uh, allow for better global collaboration um, across the world, which is obviously always an advantage. And um, I also want to report out on the RECUR study. So this is the first interim assessment of RECUR, an international randomized controlled trial of chemotherapy for the treatment of recurrent and primary refractory Ewing sarcoma. And what was so wonderful about this study is we have all these regimens that we use in Ewing sarcoma, but we're never really sure 
in the metastatic setting and in the second line relapsing, which one's better than the other? And this one is trying to look at that in a very systematic, randomized type of way, prospective study, all the things that we love in the study world. And um, and so far, it's knocked off two of the regimens that we use, gemcitabine and docetaxel, then this update, arenotecan and temozolomide. It's not that those regimens aren't good in Ewing sarcoma. They're very good regimens. It's just helping us prioritize which therapies we'll be reaching for first. So the um, next year's update hopefully will report out on ifosfamide etoposide and cytosine uh, topotecan, which are the two remaining regimens being looked at. Um, the immunosarc study was an, a wonderful study reported by our Spanish colleagues uh, and the Italian sarcoma group, and it was a phase one, two trial of sunitinib and nivolumab. Nivolumab is a checkpoint inhibitor, which you heard about a little bit earlier uh, in our discussions um, earlier. And they were looking at these in bone sarcomas, which are traditionally a very refractory type of tumor type. And this study really met its primary endpoint in the cohort of patients with advanced bone sarcomas with greater than 30% of patients free from progression at six months, which is really, um, really uh, quite a feat in such a, um, a resistant type of tumor. So there's so many studies. I know this has been echoed by other uh, uh, speakers that I would love to be able to touch upon, but I think those are some of the most exciting uh, studies that were presented. And so kind of reflecting back on all of the discussions today, um, you've heard about many different studies, diseases, approaches to therapies. We continue to prove that global collaborations are important in the care of all patients. Immunotherapy is proving to be beneficial in many tumor types, with many diseases moving immunotherapy up earlier in the treatment course. Additionally, we are seeing checkpoint inhibitors, PDL1 inhibitors, being combined with other therapies like um, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors or radiation, as some of our speakers touched upon, to add benefit and get better responses and more durable responses. Going from the top of the hour, if you will, COVID is obviously a very real presence in our lives right now and has changed all of our lives on a day-to-day -day basis drastically. But despite the tragedy of the pandemic, it has pushed, I think, the science community in ways that I think will actually benefit future research. And as well as access to patient care and clinical trials, we're doing things in new ways because we've been forced to do things in new ways, and I think that that's going to benefit all of us as a community. During Dr. Liu's discussion, I heard of improvements in survival and decreased toxicity, and again, on the theme of changing the way that we provide care, the suggestion of reducing anthracycline use is very exciting because we always want to deliver all of our therapies with the least amount of toxicity, and I heard that as a recurring theme over and over again in our different speakers' discussions. In our enthusiasm to get new drugs approved, we are often left with a lot of great therapeutics, but not really knowing when to place them in the treatment lineup. I was happy to hear from several speakers 
studies clarifying when and how to use treatments, and tumor profiling discussions helping to select the right patient for the right type of therapy, and that way we can parse out subtypes of tumors to uh, treat them more appropriately and not waste patients' good time and effort. So in summary, new drugs, new methods, global collaboration, and better trial selection for patients' individual needs. I look forward to learning more in just a few weeks from now at the ASCO educational session, and I thank all of you for your passion to moving oncology forward and being on this phone call today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Thornton. That was really outstanding, both in terms of your update on uh, sarcoma from presented at ASCO, but also the wrap-up and the way you've summarized today's this is part one of a of a two-part series. And just thank you so much for being on this call. An outstanding presentation. And um, I'm going to now, uh, uh, I'm Carolyn Mesta, I'm Director of Education uh, Cancer Care, um, and I um, would like to say a few words about Cancer Care Services and Programs, um, because I'd like to think of it as a kind of one-stop shopping for all of you, and I think some of our speakers have mentioned the role that Cancer Care plays. We are a national organization. Um, we provide uh, both practical and financial assistance. We have a co-pay foundation as well. We also offer support. We have a large staff of oncology social workers, and you call our HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673. Our staff are there to help you, or you can visit our website, www.cancercare.org. No matter what your concern or question might be, our staff are there and ready to help you. We also have instituted an entire new case management program at Cancer Care so that if for some reason you need something that we don't have, we will get you to that place that, that will, will provide the service you need. And not only do we just give you the name of the place, we are sure that you're connected. Um, we do not just uh, say, oh, we'll just call this place. We don't do that. We actually connect you and be sure that you have the needs that you have, have that the needs that you have are describing met. That's very important to all of you. Um, we do, of course, have these education workshops. There are many of them. Um, and so those will be getting word about a lot in terms of all of our programs. And um, we also do have a publications, uh, we have a number of publications that we offer as well. So we have a whole, uh, whole lot of services that you can access, and they're all free. And they're all available to all of you. Um, and um, you can simply call us on our hope line or you can visit us on, um, on, on our website um, and, and post a question. Most importantly, as we conclude this very exciting program today, get all of these medical updates. There will be a part two, of course. Um, but most importantly, we don't want anyone of you to think that you're alone in coping with cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support, many organizations. There is cancer care and many organizations that we can connect you with if you are having some needs that, that you really need to have met. So please, uh, you know, Keep this in your mind, and, and I know that many people do feel very much alone uh, because of the um, the COVID situation, and indeed because of actually uh, social distancing and um, you know not often being able to get to get well, obviously being social distancing, so really not very 
talking to you on the phone or FaceTime, but not really being able to actually be with some of the people that are very important in your life all the time. And so um, it is normal to feel, uh, of course, alone at times, but just know that you are simply a phone call or a mouse click away from connecting to um, our staff at Cancer Care. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.